0: those who are waking up and joining the movement, particularly white folks like myself, they need to understand that we serve at the direction of the directly impacted.
1: We don't, we don't decide um, what justice will look like. Hi everybody, it's Linda Laurel. Welcome to another episode of our Voices Matter podcast. Five years ago this week, Sandra Bland was pulled over by a Texas state trooper for failure to signal while changing lanes. Three days later, she was found hanged to death in her jail cell. It was ruled a suicide. The case, as you might imagine, sparked international outrage about the treatment of black people by white police officers. And it was considered a turning point in the Black Lives Matter movement. Last year, Around this same time, I had the opportunity to interview Hannah Adair Bonner. Hannah is a LGBTQ Methodist pastor who sat vigil along with many others outside the Waller County Jail in the wake of Sandra's death to bring awareness and justice in the case. In the wake of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, I thought it important to remember Sandra Bland Talk a little bit more with Hannah, first revisiting the interview that we did a year or so ago, where she goes into considerable detail about what that time was like. But then talk to her again now, today, about her thoughts, about where we've come, how much farther we still need to go. Five years later, we are having this same conversation. It's important that we remember who Sandra was, and it's important that we not forget. It's important that we keep talking about this issue so that we can, once and for all, move toward racial justice and equality. Let's get to it. So talk to me about that work, Confronting White Supremacy. What did that look like?
2: It looked like a lot of different things, right? It looked like supporting, you know, immigrant families at the bus station. But most directly, I think the thing that people most would associate me with is the fact that when Sandra Bland um, died in the Waller County Jail, uh, we had mutual friends, and those mutual friends required a response from me as their pastor, and that I ended up uh, there feeling called by God to be there and ended up continuing to follow that call and to stay, um, to continue to be there at the Waller County Jail for the first three months after her death and continue to do the work very directly in rural Texas for the next couple years and then to continue to be involved in, in relationships with folks there and to continue.
1: And so just for the purposes of our audience who might not know who Sandra Bland was, um, she was a young African-American woman who was stopped by a police officer in Waller County, um, taken out of her car, taken to jail. It was a very controversial um, case. And then three days later, she was found hanged in her jail cell. Um, And as we're doing this interview today, which is July 14th, yesterday was the anniversary of her death. Yes. And, um, and you were very involved in, um, in commemorating that. Yes. Um, tell me why that is still so very important to you Yeah. all these years later. For me, uh,
2: Sandra was somebody who in January of 2015, six months before her, life, her death, she received a call from God one night and she had her makeup washed off, and her hair in curlers, and she was ready for bed, but she put a camera in front of her face and she started vlogging. And she said that, that we need to stop waiting for somebody to come along and to change the world, that, that God has opened my eyes, she said. She said, I'm gonna talk about God. She said, I, don't, I know that some people don't like people talking about God, but I'm gonna talk about God because it's God that's opened up my eyes to the fact that there's something we can do. And she started a series of videos that went on for the next six months where she was living out this calling. And as a pastor, when I, after her death, when I saw that first video and I heard her say the words, um, it's time y'all, it was it, it pierced me. It convicted me that, that the boldness with which she was doing the work, the boldness with which she was combining unapologetically her fight for justice and her calling to, to proclaim her faith. And as a pastor, I felt convicted that she was doing it better than I was in terms of being so unapologetic both about her calling uh, because I think that as people sometimes in in, in sometimes uh, in certain circles as she was acknowledging in her video um, people don't want to hear about God right and so she was like I'm gonna talk about God <laughs> and I felt convicted that there were some times where I I didn't I didn't talk about God in certain spaces that I should because I knew it made people uncomfortable, even as a pastor. I felt so convicted by her calling and so convicted by her boldness. Um, and so I, 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 I moved forward in a way that was determined not to allow them to succeed in silencing the call that God had put on her and to make sure—so for, for much of the world, the focus was about her death, right? For me, it was about her voice and her life, making sure that people listened to her words and that she was able to live out this calling that she'd been given, even beyond her life, that people would still be hearing this and that that, that the obedience that she had had to the call of God to speak these words of love and truth and justice and healing to
1: the world would continue to be heard. You mentioned that uh, for three months following her death that you lived outside of the Waller County Jail. Mm-hmm. Why? and what was that experience like for you? Uh,
2: yeah, so uh, uh, about a few days into it, one of the the, the uh, older uh, grandmotherly figures from um, from Houston told her daughter, y- 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 "Y'all better not be sleeping out there." So we were respectful of our elders, and we didn't actually sleep out there. But yes, we were out there every day until you know from morning to, to dark. Um, but uh, the 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 reason why we were there and what we experienced. I mean, initially for the first five days that I was there, I was there because um, I felt that somebody needed to be with her. That this woman had been falsely, illegally arrested. The officer was later arrested for arresting her, for lying about arresting her, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, there's there's no doubt about the fact that it was wrong, she was in custody, right? That's not that's not up for debate. So uh, she was she was wrongfully in this space. We don't know how she lost her life. Looking at looking at the facts, the fact that there was no DNA and there's no fingerprints on the trash bag with which it was a supposedly it's it's just like it makes more sense that this didn't happen the way they said it did than that it would. It it's while we cannot be sure what happened. I feel 100 percent certainty that what they said happened is not what happened, right? And so um, she was there. She was in their custody, right? And until her family could come and get her and take her from them, she was still in the hands of the people who had done this to her, right? And so in somewhat of the tradition that many religions have of, of sitting, you know, in the Jewish tradition, I think it's sitting Shiva, right, mm-hmm. so, of sitting with her. I felt I just wanted to be with her uh, like so that she wasn't alone and so for the first five days that's why I was there. But when the family came to receive her body and to take her home and to honor her and bury her, I ended up looking in their eyes and the words just came out of my mouth, I'll do this as long as you need me to. And those were not planned words. Um, But that was a commitment and I, um, and it was a calling and it was something that I needed to follow through on and I did. Um, and remained in relationship and communication um, with the family and continued to be outside of the jail to ask what happened to Sandra Bland because by asking the question, what happened to Sandra Bland, we were confronting the reality that what they said happened is not what happened, that we don't know what happened, but that what they said happened is not what happened. And so by holding that sign outside of the jail for those months, um, and at first, the sheriff didn't take us very seriously. Um, I think he thought I was just some little girl Um, And I I love being underestimated. It gives me a chance to prove people wrong. And so he underestimated us, he threatened us, he got in our face. I think by August he, you know, he came out and took pictures of our cars and our faces and he told me to go back to the Church of Satan, which is um, that many people saw that moment because we were able to capture him on film and and share that. Um, And so they try to threaten and intimidate us and get us to leave. Um, And the reality is that they tried to make us think, and people believed, um, even within the Methodist Church, people believed with certainty that I would die. Like it was not a question. Will like if it was. So you
1: received serious death threats mm -hmm. while you were there,
2: right? And so the thing was, people really believed. If we have to, you have to stop. If you keep doing this, you will die. Not not maybe. You will. And the reality for me was that I, it was a calling from God. And I'm more afraid of God than I am of any, any human being, right? I was not about to disobey God for, for another human being. And, and secondarily, um, it was important to show people that the value, the worth of my life, and the value and worth of Sandra's life, we're equal, right? And if you're gonna be so upset about the danger that I'm supposedly in. I,
1: as a white woman. Right? Okay, yeah.
2: Then, then where is your outrage about the danger that she was in, right? And so um, that's why it was important to do that and it was also why it was important to keep the focus on her. Um, to do that fine balance of confronting people with that uncomfortable reality while at the same time um, being very strategic about uh, keeping myself from being coming centered in the national narrative.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, we were talking off camera before we started um, about how you've been approached by the national media to do interviews, and what was your response in each case?
2: I would give them the name of a black woman who was a leader in Houston to talk to, or, or in, in Waller County where it took place. And you did that because because it was our conviction to keep this focused on the folks that are directly impacted by uh, systemic racism. And when I finally, I I actually refused to talk to even local media for the first couple weeks, um, maybe even, I don't remember how long, it was at least a couple weeks that I refused to speak to local media even until, until the, um, I was receiving word from the family that that, that was not helpful to the case. <laughs> that that it would be it would be good for me
1: to. But you were talk. sensitive to the fact that, that you did not want the face of a white woman to be that the reason. Defeat, the no. reason that this was getting so much that attention. That would defeat the purpose. Right? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, so many companies are stepping up to help their communities through this challenging time. And here in Texas, one of those companies is HEB. The grocery giant has shown time and again that it knows how to handle a crisis, which is why it was ready to jump into action when the scope of the COVID-19 pandemic became apparent. The company's efforts and expertise were highlighted in a recent Texas Monthly article, quoting here, San Antonio-based HEB has been a steady presence amid the crisis. The company began limiting the amounts of certain products customers were able to purchase in early March, extended its sick leave policy and implemented social distancing measures quickly, limited its hours to keep up with the needs of its stalkers. Added a coronavirus hotline for employees in need of assistance or information and gave employees a temporary increase in mid-March. I've shopped at HEB from the moment they came to Houston almost 20 years ago. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you, HEB. And now here's my conversation with Hannah Adair Bonner on this, the fifth anniversary week of Sandra Bland's death. So Hannah, it is so great to see you again. It's been a year since we last spoke and the world has changed considerably, I think we could say.
0: Absolutely. A lot of people are waking up in a new way.
1: Yeah, in a new way. And one of the reasons that I I wanted to to revisit our conversation or build upon it is that, of course, this is the fifth anniversary now of Sandra Bland's death. And um, I'm wondering... Given all that is going on in the country right now um, in the wake of George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor and Amar Aubrey and um, so many countless others, um, and the work that you did in the immediate aftermath of Sandra's death, what are, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking and feeling particularly on this day and at this moment?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, you know, these days, July 10th to 13th are always very heavy for those that were involved in a in in a distinct way with the movement around Justice for Sandra Bland. That is, of course, heaviest for her family. Um, when you have had to mourn so publicly, I I feel a great amount of concern and compassion. Um, most of us get to mourn in private. We get to have our 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 process. Um, without the observers and the commentators about whether we are grieving properly and all of that, right? And so I think it's always heavy every year to, to know that they are once again grieving and um, to some extent once again doing it in the public eye um, and that burden that that is for them. And so, of course, we lift their, her sisters and her mother and her brother up um, and her nieces and nephews and every, um, everybody up. Um, as well as, you know, for the students that were most heavily involved in the movement on the ground there, there's, uh, you know, we have been doing something on the anniversary with COVID days. We're not gathering in Texas during July 10th to 13th, like we normally do. Um, but um but there is—that is what we normally do, which means that there there are memories. There's memories of of difficult um, traumas as well as of um, joyful reunions. Last year, we got to be with Sandra's mother um, when they declared C- Sandra Bland Day in the in the city of Austin, and so there's there's a lot of memories that come up. There's a lot of emotions that come up during these days, and so we tend to be closely in touch with each other and trying to um, support and encourage. I'm actually um, with the college students who are now, uh, we just have one left to graduate. Jasmine will graduate from PVAMU in August. Um, But we're planning to do a live stream ourselves next week um, to kind of catch up with them and let people see how they're doing.
1: Oh, that's great. That's really wonderful. And when you think about um, Sandra's um, case um, within the context of of what's going on and the massive protests that are happening around racial justice and police reform, um, what are your thoughts about where we are and how far in so many ways we have not come um, in these last five years? (laughs) I know, loaded question.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to watch the same patterns take place for those that um, have been involved in the movement. For, for those new to it, it can look really um, as if the victory has been won when a, per, when a police officer is fired or when a police officer is charged. But for those who've been a part of the movement who have been watching um, these cases play out for years, for decades, for a lifetime, uh, we know that those police officers are often fi- just hired in another department or rehired. We know that that you can follow the cases and that the that normally these cases are drug out for years in order that the final completion of them would take place when the public is no longer paying attention, um, such as the case of the murder of Yvette Smith in Bastrop County outside of Austin. Um, the first trial of the officer who killed her ended in a a mistrial and then they did a retrial. And by the time that the retrial finished, it was just myself and her family and a couple and a few reporters in the courtroom. Um, And so, you know, oftentimes these cases, when they finally end um, people are not paying as much attention anymore. And so it's, we hope That it will be different this time, right? We hope moving forward. And it's also at the same time important to educate people who are newer to the conversation that you have to keep the attention on. You have to keep the pressure on sometimes for years, not just for weeks. And then that that takes endurance. And for those that are in the trenches on the ground, for those that work so hard, um, in order for there to be a hashtag run with Ahmad, people really had to work hard on the ground in the trenches, his friends and family before that began to have national attention, right? And so to know that there are people laboring and and to to try to find the endurance to stick with them through the years that it usually takes to get justice or form of justice.
1: Does this feel different to you than five years ago or any of the other social justice movements that you've been involved in? Does this feel different?
0: I think it, it feels different Um, for sure, uh, right? You know, we're painting Black Lives Matter in the streets, et cetera. Um, But at the same time, some of the same people that might be involved in um, painting those letters in some of those streets, if you actually have a conversation with them about, well, this is what Black Lives Matter actually is, and this is what their demands actually are, um, that isn't always received. Uh, (laughs) It isn't always received, by those who, and so there's a concern, I guess, on my part of people kind of co-opting, colonizing the movement itself um, and removing it um, the way that we see um, roads that are renamed Dr. Martin Luther King Boulevard in every city. And yet does, did that bring justice to those neighborhoods? Um, And so we need to be more than words. We need to be deeds as well as words and w- w- those who are waking up and joining the movement particularly white folks like myself they need to understand that we serve at the direction of the directly impacted we don't we don't decide um what justice will look like we don't decide what needs to be demanded um those who have been suffering who have been oppressed they get to determine um that the time they should you know we should get to determine the timeline and the and the ends uh, and the means of, of of what they need, and we need to follow their lead and not direct things.
1: I'm so glad that you said that because um, so many people are, are you know don't know what to say, what to do, how to act. Um, I'm I'm a member of a of a of a private group um, called White Women Against Racism. And there's some really great discussion going on in that group. I mean, genuine um, desire to understand how best to be an ally to this movement. Um, What else can you offer to other white people who want to be an ally, don't want to step on toes, don't want to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, et cetera, You've been in this space for quite some time, for probably the the majority of your very young life. (laughs) What, What have you learned about being an ally that you can share with others who now want to occupy that space in the right way?
0: Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, some of just some of the really basic stuff is just start by listening. Don't start by talking. Uh, we do not have the answers. We are not the re- experts on racism, and we never will be because we don't experience racism. We commit it. Um, so you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't ask somebody who's committing a crime to um, explain how to stop it, right? You know, you you, you we <laughs> we need to listen to those who are experiencing racism and listen to what they need from us and try to do and to say, um, and to follow their lead. And so I think that that's, that's one of the first things is like, start by listening. Yes. We need to talk. Yes. We need to speak up. Yes. We need to say racism is wrong, but, but start with listening so that we know how to do it in a way that's useful and that's helpful and it's not centering ourselves and doing so uh, in, in a performative way, which kind of gets to the second point, which is who, you know, when you do speak up, you know, like, who, who, is, who is your audience? Um, uh, a lot of white folks will speak up in a way that is kind of performing for other white folks to look, you know, to look woke, right? But are you willing to speak up in a way where the directly impacted are actually your accountability? Where you're speaking up in a way that will maybe push so hard that it will make your other white friends angry but that it will be what the directly impacted are asking you to do. Um, And so knowing like, are we speaking up to perform and to send signals to other white people, we're not racist, or are we speaking up to actually be useful and to do the things that people directly impacted by racism are asking us um, to do. And I guess the third, just like very simple thing, you know, there's a lot of really in-depth conversation we could have, but kind of a third, just very simple thing to do is that when you show up stay Stay to the end. I think the thing that has set my life apart is that um, I stay to the end, which means like a lot of times white people will show up to a meeting or a protest or a training, but then we have uh, kids to put to bed or we have an early meeting in the morning and we leave. And by the end of whatever this event, meeting, training, protest is, oftentimes it's only the folks that are directly impacted by the injustice that are there at the end. And they also have kids to put to bed they also have meetings early in the morning, right? Um, And it's very much a revealer of how how deeply invested we are in it. Um, Whether we came to take a selfie so we could perform for folks that we did something or whether we were really in it to win it per se, like in it to destroy and dismantle racism. Um, And so those, I guess, are like three things.
1: So important. I love how you articulated that. And it's not easy, you know, it requires... um, self-examination it requires getting out of your comfort zone it requires not being afraid to put yourself out there knowing that you might say the wrong thing or you might do the wrong thing but doing nothing is not acceptable Um, not any longer Um, and when you talk about being uh, there until the end you really walk that you live that and you did that in Sandra Bland's case You remind our audience of of how long you basically held vigil there outside the jail in Waller County where she died.
0: Yeah, we were there for 80 days um, and then and then working, expanding the movements so that we could be demanding justice at the Capitol because it was a state trooper that arrested her, et cetera. We expanded the movement and we're working there in Waller County and Houston and Austin for two years um, after those initial 80 days. As a pastor, I, I when we hit day 40, I had hoped that that was enough. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> 40, kind of a milestone, right? <laughs> 40 days in the Jesus was
0: 40 days in the wilderness, um, but uh, God said no. And it ended up being another 40 days that we were there before we were released to, um, to expand and, and to continue to pressure the, the, the folks in the capital as, as well as other spaces. Yeah.
1: What do you want people to know and remember about Sandra Bland? And well, let's just start with that. As we, as we start to, to wrap up the conversation, what do you want people to know and remember about Sandra? Oh, she is an incredible
0: leader, uh, and that she was incredibly o- obedient. Um, the fact that she she received a call from God, like her first video blog, is her talking about the fact that she's up at late at night. She has her hair in curlers, she has her face wash, she's ready for bed, and despite that, she's making a blog where she's she's letting people see her in all her natural. Uh, ready for bed, Glory? Um, <laughs> And it's important to her because she says that she's received a call from God that there's something that we can do and we need to stop waiting for somebody else to come along and do something, and that she's received this call and she's going to do it, and she obeys. And because she obeys, in over the course of the next six months, she made like 30 of these video vlogs where she talks about justice and her activism and racism and her faith and all of these things. And she didn't know why she she didn't know why she she received that calling, but she obeyed. She obeyed. It. And because she obeyed it, she was able to lead her own movement. She was able to give us instructions. You know, one time she's does, did a video where she was um, at a, at the mall, uh, engaged in trying to get people to sign a petition about the kids who had their World Series um, taken away. And um, she, there was a young man who helped support her when some of the mall police were were harassing her. And then um, she makes a video with him. And she said, like they said, that they're throwing him out. And if he gets fired, I'm going to come back here. And I'm going to sit here every day until he gets his job back. And we sat there every day for her, right? So in many ways, when we didn't know what to do, we would watch the videos and she would guide the movement herself. And it was her voice that summoned people all around the world. It was her courage. It was her, her passion um, she, I, I think that people should remember her as an incredible leader who, because of her obedience to her call, was able to lead her own movement for justice.
1: What would you like to leave our audience with today as we navigate the twin crises of the, the pandemic and and the racial unrest, the um, justice movement, the social justice movement that's going on in the country, from your perspective as a pastor, as, a, as an activist, as, as someone who is literally in the trenches on the ground and has been for a long time trying to, trying to affect change in our country?
0: Yeah, to remember that every crisis is an opportunity because it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to dig deep and to discover who we really are. And that this is a crisis for our nation where it feels like everything's uncertain, everything's falling apart, nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, it, can be, it can be alarming to know that things that we could count on, we don't know whether they'll still be there. But it also creates an opportunity that things that have always been there, we have an opportunity to rebuild this world in a different way. We have the ability as we're sitting in our homes to think, do I really want to go back to life as, as, as normal? Was life as normal good enough? What changes do we want to make so that when we go back, it's 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 better, it's different? Thinking once we remove ourselves from this physical space of others, sometimes we see things more clearly, and we can think when we're not so stressed and we're not so focused. You know, I really, you know, I don't like how they treated how they treated my coworker. What am I going to do about that to make that different? When uh, now, right? But also, if and when we are back together in person, um, and so so thinking that not just grieving all that we're losing because of COVID, but also thinking about all the opportunities that it creates as things are unfortunately um, destroyed um, by by this time period. What things will we create that are different and that are better, um, and and how is it that we are going to be sensitive and? and cognizant of the fact that those who have been experiencing oppression and experiencing less opportunities um, will experience this COVID crisis in an even more heavy and dramatic and loss-filled way. And how do we make sure that in our desire for our own survival, we, we don't lean into the same abusive and racist tendencies that we always have and leave them even further behind? How do we change direction? In response to the ways that we are waking up, how do we change direction and say, no, this, this time we will behave differently. We will, even in our recovery from this pandemic, we will make, we will
1: make sure um, that we are not leaving people behind. And that's the perfect place, I think, for us to end our conversation on that, that note of optimism and hope and turning this into the opportunities and looking at, looking at it with all of the opportunities that lie before us to do something better as we go forward. So Hannah, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your, your perspective and your passion um, with our audience. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, my pleasure. such a joy to be with you again. Okay. Be well, my friend. You too. If you'd like to learn more about the Sandra Bland case and what has transpired in the five years since her death, we've got links to all of that information in the show notes on our website. In the meantime, thanks again for giving Hannah Adair Bonner permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. We'll see you next time.